This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome. My name is Ben Perry. Thank you for joining us for episode 22 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guest today is the Detachment Chief for Detachment 3, the 45th Operations Group at Patrick Air Force Base, Florida, the only full-time unit tasked to provide DOD support to the nation's crewed spaceflight programs, responsible for worldwide astronaut rescue, medical operations, and nominal and contingency landing site support. He trains first responders worldwide to safely and effectively execute rescue of NASA and NASA-sponsored astronauts aboard spacecraft. Please welcome Jeremy McClendon. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me, man. It's been a long time in the works. Glad to uh, get this thing going. Yeah, we've been talking about it uh, since actually I, I heard I first heard about you. And this was probably back in, I don't know, this might have been pre-COVID. So uh, a million years ago, it feels like. Oh, yeah. it was. Uh, I think it was around promotion release time when you were one of the uh, couple of folks that hit me up on an email uh, out of nowhere. It inquired about the job, so... Yeah, we'll get into why that is. I think it's probably because <laughs> it's the coolest job in the Air Force. Uh, but so, so you're a firefighter working with NASA. So, but you're not part of Cape Canaveral Fire Department. You're not part of Patrick Fire Department. You work for the 45th Operations Group in a unit called Detachment Three. What is that? So, Detachment Three has actually been around since the inception of NASA, right? So, like our unit um, has been the only unit task to provide basically astronaut rescue all the way back from the Apollo Gemini days, all the way through Soyuz and shuttle. Um, so it's dwindled down when the, when the unit first started, there was, I mean, there was hundreds of people in the unit. There's a three-star general that was the commander of it, you know, and then over time um, mission went down and when, especially when the space shuttle went away, we, we kind of, uh, our manning really got gutted. And one of the positions that they really wanted to keep was the firefighter because in the transition between the shuttle to where we are now, they didn't know uh, what kind of aircraft or spacecraft they'd be using. But anyway, so the detachment, right, we're like a, a small unit full of SMEs, um, subject matter experts from rescue, uh, pilots, everything, They're, that are charged with NASA to basically provide worldwide rescue for uh, astronauts. They're basically like NASA presses 911 and then we activate our units uh, worldwide. Um, we do provide um, support to the Russian Soyuz capsule, uh, and we also provide support for the Artemis program, which is like the deep space program. Like I said, we've, um, I know a lot of the listeners on here probably remember the shuttle rescue days. That's something I actually never went through um, as a young buck back in the day, but I always heard about everybody going through it, and it was awesome. So when I got this job, I really didn't expect, you know, what Debt 3 did till I got in here. And um, so now it's kind of, you know, it's all over the place. And every day when I go to work, it's something different. It's unique. It's, you know, you don't really know because we're still in the developmental phases, uh, even though we just had the crew, the first crew launch. But we're, we mean, we're still developing procedures. We're still working on with three programs. So what other resources besides, you know, obviously one firefighter? What else is in uh, the 45th OG Debt 3? So we have... Uh, C-130 pilots, rescue helicopter pilots. We have a Navy F-18 navigator. We have um, a reservist PJs. We have retired PJs. We have a SEER guy. We have a um, master diver from the Navy, master diver from the Coast Guard. We got a couple of firefighters. Um, we have uh, just navigators, logistics, AFE. I mean, we're like, a, like I said, a smorgasbord of SMEs in that unit that, that come together to 
come up with the TTPs. Uh, and like, oh, oh yeah, we have an active, active duty doctor in the unit. So wow. um, yeah, we, one of the things though that we do is we cover three capsules. So um, that's why we have like such a wide variety of uh, people in their unit is for the Artemis program, um, we actually provide nominal end of mission support for uh, the capsule. So we work with the Navy out of Navy Base San Diego. And that's why we have like a Navy bosun, a Navy uh, diver, all those guys, because we work with active duty Navy out in San Diego and we take one of their ships to recover the capsule and everything. Um, kind of jumping back with the SpaceX and Boeing. So those are commercial providers that we are only tasked to provide um, contingency rescue. So these like SpaceX is a water, like a water lander, like you may have seen just on TV. Uh, Boeing, on the other hand, uh, is a land lander. And so it's going to like, you know, so we have two completely different types of capsules that we support that require two totally different kinds of rescue. Um, but with either one of them, the most dangerous rescue of all is going to be out in the ocean. So that's what we kind of train to the most dangerous uh, mission, which would be jumping PJs out somewhere in the middle of the ocean to rescue these astronauts uh, wherever they're at. Man, that's that sounds like an incredible team that's able to go do an incredibly wide range of duties uh, in support of NASA, you know, the Soyuz program, Artemis, all these these kind of wildly different, but still space. And, you know, th th I guess they're the same on some level. But what does a firefighter do? Right. So I, I, if I had to guess, it's because it's basically a controlled aircraft crash uh, is what you're going out there to kind of train for and prepare for coming back in. Is, is that right? Correct. Yeah. So that's what I like when I'm teaching the PJs, I say, just treat this thing like if it was an F-16 that crashed, right? Because F-16s have hydrazine on it and all these space capsules have hypergolic fuels. But in reality, it's just a small craft with passengers in it that, that crash somewhere. So the firefighter, one of the, what they lean heavily, like the DOD and NASA on our unit, and specifically in my position, is our hazmat expertise, uh, aircraft egress, and incident command. Um, right now, our main focus is the hazmat stuff because we're training PJs, Navy divers, and everything about hypergolic fuels, how to detect hypergolic fuels, how to do that out in the middle of the ocean, um, what they're looking for, you know, basically what their first aid, first, like if they get uh, in contact with the hypergols, um, what they do, like, you know, basically going through a hazard assessment, right? Like they go up, do their sleeps. Um, also, though, you know, so SpaceX is supposed to land on uh, in water and then Boeing lands on land. So, like, you just imagine if this thing lands somewhere in the United States and, you know, some local county fire department shows up on scene because this thing just floated down in their backyard. Well, they don't know anything about it. Right. So and, my, and what I did is I came up with this kind of factable checklist thing, basically a first responder guide. They kind of go. It's basically a. A 105E-9 mixed with like an AFTO-88 that tells a firefighter like everything they need to know about the aircraft in like firefighter terms, you know. So it's like broken down simple with pictures, like how to open the hatch, how to open the top hatch, what are the hazards on it, where are the hazards located, um, how to get the astronauts out of the seats, how to get, you know, I mean, how to get them out of the... Um, because if something goes wrong and they land somewhere they, they weren't expected to land, you know, it's it's probably hard for your unit to pick up and get there as quick as the local volunteer fire department's going to get on scene. Right. Right. And so, and, and so like kind of I'll backtrack again. So during a mission, we have a C-17 stage at joint base Charleston and joint base Pearl Harbor Hickam. 
And uh, those are those have, and then we'll also, for a launch, we'll have a team at Patrick. Uh, for a landing, we're not required to have a team at Patrick. So basically, we have three locations with two C-17s, C-130s, and HH-60s to provide global response. Uh, so that's, if this thing lands on land, like these C C-17s we have are all equipped for water. So that we're not going to launch those C-17s to Oklahoma because right. they're all, they have, jet, <laughs> they have jet skis, boats, and dive gear and all that kind of stuff. At that point, it's going to be like a best effort, right? Like whatever was the, the closest base. But like you said, a local fire department, it could even be a police. So we have like, it's basically a two page um, guide on there that will tell you, hey, if this thing's on fire, stay away this far. Stuff pulled right from the ERG, right, for hydrogen. Sure. And then it gets more into like if the if the firefighters on scene want to help try to get the astronauts out. Um, one, I'm going to talk straight to their IC because we're going to work with the Air, uh, Air Force Rescue Center and we're going to basically get in contact with them. We're going to get them that guide so they can come up with their international plan and figure out what they want to do. And then I would be the SME on the phone talking to this commander. So that's another thing as a firefighter, I'll, I'm like working in the ops center and that's kind of one of my things, my roles that I'm going to shift into if this thing lands somewhere in the United States, you know, basically talking to the incident commander and walking him through and providing any information that he needs. Wow. That's, that's a, a little, I'm a little speechless by how wide of the scope of that job seems uh, and the mission of the unit specifically, but as the firefighter, I mean, it's not stuff you're normally doing working down at base X, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, how, how did you get trained for this job? Who, who kind of took you under their wing and taught you how to do all this stuff? I mean, the Lewis F. Garland fire Academy is where I got all the <laughs> training, you know? So, I mean, like this job, there's no, you know, there's no OJT for it. Cause like when I came into the unit, um, SpaceX and Boeing had just been awarded the contract. So like they were still developing their capsule. So in that transition from the shuttle to now, I mean, there, there wasn't, really anything to train me on so everything that i learned was like every day i go into work and they're like hey boeing needs you out at johnson space center to help their uh landing recovery team which are firefighters run through like basically developing their nominal egress procedures on how to get the astronauts out of the capsule i've never even seen the boeing capsule so it's like go out there and once spend a day learning about the capsule and then just working with them using normal aircraft rescue i mean techniques we come up with these cool systems, you know, with pulleys and ropes and everything. And then you find out the easiest way to do it is just to muscle somebody up out of the, <laughs> out of the capsule the same way you would do like an F-15, you know. Sure. So, but every, it's something that's different every day. You know, the biggest thing is when we work with the Navy because those guys out there, like I said, we provide nominal support for the Navy. Um, and it's that like we provide like their fire department is going to you know, have possibly have a response on shore or on the ship, their, their DCA. So, so, I mean, it's just, you know, learning every day on the job. Cause like I said, something comes up every day. It almost seems like that is like kind of, you know, out of the blue, but yeah, yeah, there's no, there, there was no training from anybody. I mean, my, my uh, predecessor, I have a, a partner that I work with. He's a contractor, but he is a, he used to be in the unit back during the shuttle days. So he kind of provides some of that historical aspect, you know, and that back in shuttle, phrase you know like this yeah. is how we did it so um but you know like i said there's there wasn't any uh like a formal on the job training thing or anything so so as we mentioned in the beginning i think you know nasa and spacex just teamed up to do the first manned space flight american astronauts from american soil in almost a decade and you guys were kind of at the front and center of all that if i'm understanding right so how did you guys 
team up with the NASA and SpaceX teams and prepare? I mean, was it kind of just a everyday, like, like, you know, you kind of mentioned it already, but everyday something new, or did you, did you have kind of like timelines? Okay. But you know, by month, you know, three out from launch, we have to have these things accomplished or I have to assume it's structured, right? Oh yeah. So, uh, I mean, I feel like we've just glossed over everything, right? So our unit's broken up to like a mission support division, a rescue division, uh, a medical division, and a commercial crew division. Um, so yeah, so we have, you know, in the space world, they always do like L minus what twenty four, L minus sure. eight hours to launch, right? So we go like we have basically like L minus forty five. We'll do um, we start like a, a checklist or whatever. But one of the biggest things that we do. That we completely that we haven't talked about is we train PJs, right? So I told you that we had PJs at Charleston, PJ the Patrick, PJs at Hickam. Well, those guys have like we bring them in for like a week and we put them through the ringer of like a whole crawl, walk, run phase uh, to where we're you know we train them. So and yeah, that is all structured. I mean, our unit we do everything from writing upwards, exwards, all that stuff, all the way down to the tactical level of training the PJs out in the water. And again, so, you guys are the ones creating all that, right? You're yeah, not pulling yeah. it from a manual on the bookshelf. Now, this stuff. So what we're what we're creating is getting actually get put into the the PJs three three, like their of their tactics. The first two years I was in the unit was trial and error, us coming up with the TTPs, trying it out. We work hand in hand with SpaceX, so they have like uh, trainer spacecraft that we put in the water. So we'll try these TTPs, and we've gone through different iterations and of what we think works the best, and so like one thing like is we, one of our focus areas is a hazard assessment. So while we were doing these TTP developments, we were going out on jet skis around the capsule that didn't have any hypergalls on it and basically practicing what we think how we would do it. So during SpaceX's in-flight abort test, I was uh, able to go out with SpaceX on their Go Searcher uh, boat and uh, watch the launch and everything on the water. Well, then we launched our jet ski and I put on scuba gear and PPE and with on with a PJ and we went and basically validated the has assessment on a real spacecraft that had hypergolic and then you know videoed and everything and so we could like you know show that as your training material for the exactly the next class yeah so we showed the PJs hey like this isn't something we just came up with you know in a classroom we came up with it we practice it and then we did it ourselves you know on a space capsule in rough seas um, with hypergalls on it. And so they, uh, you know, just to cause give them the the warm and fuzzies, because once they start learning about hypergolic fuels, you know, they kind of start, that's like their, their biggest concern for this whole mission, especially if they're out in the middle of the ocean. So. Sure. So how long ago did training for, uh, demo two start? So this one specific last mission, how long ago did you get involved with, with that crew? So we, actually had to perform we call it just-in-time training so we actually did just-in-time training for 26 pjs um, before the launch and then we had to do the same thing for another 26 pjs for the landing because the pjs have where the active duty units have their deployment windows and this one kind of like we we lost some pjs to deployment so we had to bring some more in and so um we actually before these were kind of attached to a launch and a landing, but we're kind of decoupling it from a launch and landing where we're just going to do like different sessions throughout the year and try to hit as many PJs as we can. So like they'll have a pool to use. Um, so for this one, we just finished probably about two weeks before the landing. We wrapped up and got the PJs. Uh, they went back home for a few days and then they deployed to, to Hawaii and Charleston. 
and then um, and then set alert for the for the landing. And by teach, uh, do you mean classroom PowerPoint or are you out in the water on jet skis? All the above. So uh, so day one, I mean, when these guys get here, they literally land on Sunday and a Monday. We're starting training. So they get the whole embry from the commander. You know, our DO, they get the, the history of why they're here. And then at lunchtime, like my class is first one they get. So they get a PowerPoint lesson, you know, basically of all the hazards of the capsule. Uh, and then w- then they get a capsule overview uh, we'll have, and outside. And then they get like all the ground support equipment, which is basically the equipment that these PJs jump. They're like life rafts and stuff like that. They get it like, you know, hands on. Day two, we're in the water, but we're in the basin uh, where it's calm water. And then I'm riding on the jet ski with a PJ, basically talking their two has guys. You know, we're doing it around the capsule, but they're like, I'm still talking them through it. I'm driving the jet ski, walking them through what to do. Uh, then the next day, you know, like I said, we do the whole crawl, walk, run. So then the next day it's PJ led. So we've taught them how to do everything in the basin. So then they, they go through the whole thing of has assessment, capsule egress, pulling the astronauts out of the capsule into a boat. And then we do it at nighttime in the basin because things are different night and day. And then we do a capstone event where we actually go 13 miles out in the open ocean and just put the PJs out there. And we're just doing iterations all day because it's completely different in the basin with no waves. And then the last time we was out there and we have like five to six foot swells out there. It's completely different pulling astronauts out of a, a space capsule. So, so once you're out in the water or behind the PowerPoint or whatever, and you're pointing out the different hazards, uh, you know, these are pretty unique vessels that are going up, you know, kind of one of a kind built um, and definitely not like your standard aircraft, although maybe your rescue procedures might mimic it. Uh, there's got to be some uniqueness. So what are some of those uniquenesses and hazards that you're looking for? You already mentioned hypergolic fuel. Uh, right. Why don't you explain that a little bit? All right. So um, all, all three capsules that we support, uh, the Orion capsule, the Boeing Starliner and the SpaceX Dragon capsule, they all use hypergolic fuels for like basically for maneuvering in space and for their launch escape system. So SpaceX specifically uses monomethyl hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide, which mixes together. You have an oxidizer and a hypergolic fuel mixes together called this combustion. So for SpaceX on the launch pad, they have the ability to launch the space capsule off the rocket uh, if, if the computers detect something going on. And that same system, like in free flight, can launch the capsule off of uh, the rocket if, they, if it detects it like the rocket's going to blow up. Right. Um, so that's something, you know, like Boeing and Orion only have, they have a catalyst that, and that just uses hydrazine that goes over the catalyst and causes combustion. So SpaceX, you know, has a, a little bit more. The problem is, it's like, so, you know, firefighters, if we can't get into something like a door, like we're supposed to, we're going to cut somewhere, right? We're going to tear stuff up and we're going to get into it. These capsules are so small with so many, like there's literally no area that you can cut on. So we have to tell them that like, hey, you can't get on there and start cutting a hole in this thing because there's hypergolic fuel lines that run all over the, the, the capsule. Um, the and biggest, sort of pyrotechnics and, you know, all sorts of other craziness. Oh yeah, there's so you know the they all have parachutes and they have drogue mortars that are mortars that that shoot the parachute. So there's always a possibility of having unexpended mortars on there. Um, you know the heat from the capsule, like especially if it's coming from if it's at the station and it just made a reentry, you know upwards of 500 degrees could be on the exterior of the capsule. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of hazards, um, but the the main one is the hypergolic fuels that we worry about because like if I don't know if you watched. 
the landing, but when they pulled the SpaceX capsule up onto the uh, onto the Go Navigator, they were trying. They were like six guys standing around the capsule before they tried to get the astronauts out. So the last thing they do before they open the hatch was to do one more sweep with their hat detector, and then they got a nitrogen tetroxide hit on there. None of those guys wearing PPE or anything. So yeah, I saw that, the mix of PPE up there, and <laughs> yeah, if you know, like, that. yeah, those two guys, like two guys, showed up wearing SCBA after the fact. So that is a lesson learned for me that I took because now I'm going to incorporate that into my training because it's hard. You know, this was a nominal landing. There was nothing wrong with it, but the system was purging NTO out of it. So, you know, that's something that I'm going to show the PJs like, Hey, you like there, like this has detector is, you know, we, we train them that that thing needs to be with them at all times because it's like the only detection they're going to have if there's any sort of leak out there. So, but that basically validated what, what we, you know, why we teach them the, the whole hazard assessment. Sure. So you, you mentioned a couple of times nominal landing versus contingency. And w- now what would the line be? You know, nominal being best case scenario, contingency being probably your, your, your other end of the spectrum. But what's the line to where your team gets activated? Uh, and I'm guessing that wasn't your team that actually picked uh, Demo 2's craft out of the water. Yeah, that's... No, that's SpaceX. So like I said, that was a nominal landing, right? So a nominal landing is that spacecraft is just coming back. There's nothing wrong with it. And it lands where it's supposed to land. So if that capsule would have said landed 200, 300 miles off course, off the X, right? And then the NASA's boat or SpaceX's boat only goes like 10 knots. So it would take that thing forever to get there. So at that point, NASA could go to the DOD and request DOD support that we launched the PJs. Because they would be, you know, they could get there before the the SpaceX's ship, and then, you know, just basically station ten with the, the astronauts until you know SpaceX gets on scene. So it's just a call that someone will make. There's not a checklist that says, okay, we've hit eight out of twelve things, and so now you're activated. No, where we sit there until and basically until NASA asks request support. Like NASA officially has to go, like, because we'll we'll have a rep up at Kennedy Space Center with nasa and basically during any launch or landing they're going to hit they will they have to go to the dod and say nasa is requesting dod support and at that point in time that mission turns over to the dod right so we own we own the rescue mission um and nasa is just a supported basically customer that we're that we're we're responding to and then you'll own it until just like an aircraft crash or something until the emergency stabilized and then you'll turn it back over to spacex or nasa or somebody yeah right so if this say this thing landed out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? That's definitely not anywhere near the coast of Florida. So we had launched probably the Hickam team because they would get there the quickest. And then uh, we have like timelines, just like firefighters, like, like we have timeline to get on scene. Like we have a timeline to NASA to have the hatch open, but it just all depends on at what point of flight it was at or where, you know, because if once they get on station, our forces stand down. So like if there was something wrong on the station and they had to undock from the space station and just come to earth, there would be, like we didn't have, we wouldn't have PJs on scene or like on standby. So they would, it would just be a best effort. But if we did, if it was during a launch or a landing and we launched the PJs to the Pacific Ocean, they would get to the astronauts. They would pull the astronauts out of the capsule. They would basically just have to float out there because they have jet skis and some wing boats. But then, then this becomes like a best effort rescue or a rescue the rescuer type scenario to where did that like any a uh, friendly flag vessel is going to get directed to go pick up the PJs. And that could be an oil, sh- you know, like an oil tanker or a fishing boat, you know, just something like they're going to start sending somebody to pick those guys up until they can get them on 
a DOD installation. And then once we get them turned over to NASA, then that's when it's the DOD mission is complete. Well, the, the local populace seemed pretty capable to get out there in a pretty quick uh, fashion during this last, last uh, landing, it looked like. Yes, that's one of those things. So I was worried, like I said, I was working in the office center and our wing commander is, uh, so when we get during the launch or landing, we get activated as task force 45. And so the wing commander here, Patrick becomes a task force 45 commander. And so he was in our ops center sitting right just like behind me. And I mean, at first it was kind of hard to tell, like those private boats. And then the, the, <laughs> when, the, when the Trump flag went by, yeah. you know, it kind of gave it away. So if we had, a, we have a Coast Guard liaison officer in the ops center and we had a Coast Guard cutter. And he out was the water. scrambling. I'm yeah, sure, but, like. <laughs> so that's one of those things. Like we only do what NASA has requested in like in these formal documents and SpaceX, there's nothing like requested from the DOD to provide security for, because that, that is a commercial spacecraft, right? right. So the, the, the cutter, like the, the Coast Guard liaison officer told us that, hey, like we're launching one of our fast boats over there to try to give them away for safety, but they don't have any authority out there to like make those civilian boats get away from that capsule. So Which just sure- seems a little crazy, right? Like that they wouldn't have, I mean, you can only control so much of the right. ocean, I guess. And if you announce on international television that, hey, they're going to be landing yeah. in Pensacola, you know, people are probably going to start getting funny ideas in their head. No, yeah. You'd think that they'd have security um, somehow. I'm sure that's in the work right now. I'm sure they'll figure it out for the next one. Trying to figure out, you know, the request some DOD support out there for uh, for the next landing. But yeah, they have to tell them like, a, you know, notice the Mariners that the spacecraft's coming in, you know, so they were all out there waiting for it because as soon as it landed, they were zooming to it. Right. So did you get a chance to work directly with the crew, Bob Binkin and Doug Hurley, the astronauts that were on the recent mission uh, prior to their launch? So I personally didn't work with Bob and Doug on this one, but we do work hand in hand with astronauts all the time because the astronauts have like an extremely invested interest in what we're doing because like we're basically the, the lifeline for those guys if something goes wrong so they at a lot of the tt ttp events that we do they'll bring the crew out there to kind of observe what they're doing or maybe like incorporate some of their training and what they're doing uh, with us uh, but yeah we do work especially when we go out to, to houston and work in johnson space center i mean astronauts are always over there working uh with boeing's mock-up trainer they have over there so they do have a vested interest and they are like extremely uh, interested in the techniques that we're coming up with. To, uh, well, I can imagine. Yeah. I, I, I'd want to know what you were doing, too, if my life was pretty much completely in your hands as I hurl towards the Earth. Yeah, especially those guys, you know, uh, once you're on space station for like six months, those astronauts get like deconditioned. So yeah. even if you have a normal landing out in the water and you're bobbing around the capsule, those guys are going to have a hard time. Uh, getting themselves out of the straps and getting in a life raft that they want to just because of uh, the deconditioned aspect of zero G gravity. So what do you think of the job, right? So it sounds like during actual, um, you know, activation, you're, you're kind of at a terminal kind of waiting on, waiting on the calls and stuff, but you do, it sounds like you do a lot of training. Uh, sounds like you go TDY a lot, right? So how, how is that life for an air force firefighter? So, I mean, it's awesome, right? Like, because most of our TDY locations, San Diego, California, Los Angeles, California, Houston. You, you probably get hazard pay for going yeah. out there, right? Oh, yeah, now. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, it's like I said, like it's even though SpaceX just launched, that was just a test mission, right? So the first like crew one launch is going to be in the fall that we're going to be supporting. Well, Boeing still has their uh, unmanned test, uh, OFT, that they're going to re retry later on this year because they attempted earlier this year and the, the capsule wasn't able to make it all the way up into the orbit that it was supposed to make or make the space station. Um, so at that point, like that's an interesting story. So I was working in our ops center. We were kind of running an exercise in parallel with the launch just to run some of our checklists. And once the thing didn't make it to orbit, they started talking about this. Hey, this might be landing at Edwards Air Force Base or whatever, you know. So they I had like six or seven people literally turn and look at me like, uh, <laughs> you know, what do we do? Yeah. So at that point, you know, we're like we start coming up with, OK, well, if we think it's going to land there, you know, we're going to reach out to Edwards or we're going to reach out and like kind of give them a heads up that, hey, this thing might be landing there. Um, but so I kind of want to talk about the Artemis program because that's the deep space mission, right? Like this is the one that's supposed to go to the moon and then eventually go into Mars. Uh, and I mentioned that we do the we do everything contingency rescue, but we also do nominal end of mission. Um, so where we get on a Navy LPD, which is one of those ships that kind of launch uh, hovercraft out the back of it, you know, we use that to recover the capsule, basically like a big fishing line. So once we get that capsule onto into the well deck of this uh, ship, you know, this thing's still full of hypergolic fuel. So that's kind of one of the things like we're still in the TTP development working with the Navy on, hey, what are we going to do if this thing starts leaking hydrogen in the back of the ship? Uh, same thing for when we get it on shore. Like we actually have a meeting with the Navy base San Diego fire chief next week to talk about, hey, we need to run through contingency plans if this thing, you know, we know where it's going to be. We know where it's going to, because they're going to like deservice this thing. If it starts leaking hypergolds, we have to incorporate NASA into your uh, like emergency response. Because once, once they deem it clear, NASA has the team that knows how to go in, shut down systems, you know, close valves on the capsule and all that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a lot of planning and a lot of meetings and a lot of just trying to figure out on the, like, on the fly what we need to do because this is all completely different from shuttle i mean this shuttle was you know landed on runways and it was basically we treated it like an aircraft at all the towel sites and everything and so this one you know it's it's just trying to make sure we're not forgetting something you know before uh, we actually have a mission which is hard because it's the first couple that have happened at least in a very long time and definitely you know by the commercial sector yeah, and that's what so that's your your specifications are are different between the companies, and it sounds like one you know SpaceX maybe has their own boats. Uh, yeah, so no, so the Artemis program is like a NASA ran program, just like shuttle. Boeing and SpaceX are the two commercial providers. So um, Boeing, yeah, so Boeing lands on land, so they don't have a boat that they go out to recover their capital. So they'll send their landing recovery team to whatever one of the five landing sites, which are all on DoD installation. Um, and so that, like, that's where we kind of like, I know that's kind of like the long pole in the tent, but we still have, you know, th we have DOD firefighters at these installations that are going to be supporting a civilian contractor who's landing a civilian spacecraft on a DOD installation. So like, you know, you can see where the bureaucratic kind of tape is going to, yeah. you know, but that's, like I said, that's long pole in the tent. They're not launching astronauts before IPCS from out here. So, but, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so, um. But no, so the yeah, Boeing, like I said, we um, they land on land, and we'll see. So, so back to Artemis, the you know mission to get to the moon and to Mars, and does that 
drastically change what you're doing for the mission? I mean, is the is the spacecraft different enough to to where you're going to have to completely start from scratch for that mission, or is is it kind of all the same once it's up there, once it comes down? You know, yeah, it's it's pretty much just like so. They actually did a test flight of the Orion capsule back in 2014. It was an EFT one exploration flight test one where they launched the capsule into orbit for about four hours and then they landed it off the coast of San Diego. And then our unit was out there and nominally recovered this capsule uh, into the Navy LPD. And so uh, the next mission is another test mission in uh, 2021. And it's going to be like about a 30 day mission where they're actually going to, the capsule is going to go to the moon un- uncrewed. There's going to be nobody on it. And it's going to go around the moon and be up in space for about 30 days and come back. So. So yeah, nothing changes. I mean, it's just it'll it'll just have more hypergolic fuel on it than if it was just doing a test. That's pretty sure. Right. And and I can assume that these launches are going to start to pick up, which means landings are going to start to pick up, and which means you guys are going to get busier. Does that mean you think? I mean, you can't probably speak for your whole unit, but is it is your unit going to grow? Is is the mission going to develop more as it goes? You think? Oh yeah. So. They're at, they're looking to do about four launches and four landings a year just for SpaceX and uh, Boeing, and that doesn't include any of the Artemis missions we have. So right now, like when, once the Space Force stood up, you know, so we're we're an attachment right now at a at the 45th Space Wing. When the Space Force stood up, you know, and then the U.S. Space Command stood up. We used to work for Stratcom, now we work for Space Command. U.S. Space Command when we're activated. Well, we're kind of like that in, in limbo. Of who do we belong to, right? Do we belong in the Space Force? Even though, because we do terrestrial rescue, we don't do any rescue in, in space. You know, all our space, right. all our rescue happen on land. So we're actually going through right now, I think it's ACC led, but don't quote me on that. They're doing an OPT to find out like for our manning, like, hey, like they, we doing mission analysis because we have to have more manning. Like we, we don't have the manning to do I mean, we do all the staff level work, like I said, from writing orders and tasking units to developing the TTPs and then actually doing the training and then working in an ops center. You know, we only have 10 active duty people on our unit, you know, because all yeah. your PJs and, and other assets are farmed out, you know, or I guess farmed in They They belong to other units yeah. and you guys just have them attached to you for these activations, I guess. Yeah, they get tasked and then so they'll they come here on a TDY on TDY orders and then, you know, and then they go on alert and then they go back home. So, but they don't do any of the, I mean, they don't do any, they just come here and get trained and then they, they do the mission. They don't do any of the back, you know, the backside stuff that we do, like riding the orders, sure. developing. I mean, we have, you know, almost $6 million worth of rescue equipment and we don't have an active duty or full-time logistics person in our wow. unit. <laughs> and, that, and we have parachutes and we don't have, a, we have, we have reservists that we, we borrow and bring on orders, but we don't have anybody to pack parachutes or to inspect parachutes, you know? So we're definitely going to get a bump up in manning is like, you know, and, and especially now that they're actually launching astronauts and it's like front center and not one of those yeah. things where they're just kicking the can down the road. It's not theoretical you know? at this point, you're actually right. doing it. Right. So, yeah. And I'm sure I, I would guess, you know, that your, your brothers down at the uh, Patrick air force base, fire department are probably willing to come out and help you drive jet skis and keep them, keep them fueled up and stuff. Maybe. Yeah, I was, uh, I was uh, lucky to be a part of that department, you know, so I still got some contacts over there. So yeah, when I, uh, like I said, we don't have, we have a bunch of jet skis and we don't have enough guys to, you know, take them and ops, check them, you know, what, like, so I do, I grab some of those guys and have them go out there and ops check the, uh, the equipment for this and everything. So. Well, this has to be hands down 
in my opinion, the coolest job as a firefighter in the Air Force for sure. Um, there's there's probably some competition for coolest job in the Air Force, uh, potentially. Again, my opinion. How does one find this job? You know, this one probably doesn't you don't you don't just get selected for it randomly. You know, it's not going to show up on your, uh, you know, regular assignment list as you no. get the job. So I was um, I actually applied it was on AMS, you know, advertised job. It is a three seven position. So I'm sitting I am in a like a fire billet. So like for promotion and testing and all that stuff, like I'm still in the career field, but it's just a one deep position in an ops group. Um, but it, like I said, it's advertised on AMS. And I knew the guy who was in it before. He was actually in, in this unit for almost five years. He, he did a lot of development, though. He did a lot of, you know, the stuff before I came into the unit. But um, like I said, I, I'll be PCS in soon. So like it'll it'll show up one day on AMS and then you can apply for it. There'll be uh, qualifications, right, that you got to meet. And so, but it's just you're like fire officer three, uh, instructor three and. Hold on, I'm taking I'm taking yeah. notes right here. Uh, and half so. <laughs> but, you, but, you know, I know a lot of people try to shit like shy away from hazmat stuff in their in their in their career fields or in the career. So this is one of those jobs that you you have to be able to embrace hazmat because this is like that. You got to get in the books. You need to know because you'll have I mean, you have people at NASA and that they what you say, they take to the bank because you're the subject matter expert that the DOD has in this position. So, I mean, you need to have like a, a pretty good knowledge of ha- hazardous material responses or and at least getting a book, you know, to make sure that you're speaking intelligently when you're talking right. to NASA or the or the uh, like any first responders. So Sure. And I'm sure you've, you know, developed your your skills and your craft as you've progressed over the last few years in the job. You probably didn't have all of the corporate knowledge you have right now. Day one coming in. Oh, no, it was uh, it was re- doing a lot of research when we first came in, you know, and like reading through just thousands of pages of like documents on all the capsules that make sure that I'm like not missing anything. Cause it, I mean, there's no checklist. Like when I'm like the class I developed for the hazards of the capsule, I like SpaceX doesn't teach me that, you know, I have to sure. go through their manuals and like find all the hazards and, you know, and put and then develop the training for that. So, so yeah, I've learned, I mean, I learned so much being there. Another thing though, that really helps you in this job is, uh, you, you speak to a, a lot of higher level NASA people or NASA officials. So you, you've kind of learned how to um, handle those situations a little bit, you know, like, you know, we're in the, in the fire department, we kind of get in our own world where we don't really do a whole lot of speaking outside of, you know, the squadron, you know, uh, level stuff. So it, it has helped my communication skills with uh, people and, you know, especially civilians and outside agencies. So. So when is the next space flight that you guys are going to be activated for? So um, it's going to be in the fall right now. It's like that right now is still like proprietary information because uh, NASA and SpaceX haven't officially. It's like there's a no earlier, but basically September, October timeframe. We're gearing up for a uh, another crew launch. Okay. Um, and then, like I said, we're working for Boeing in the fall, maybe early next year, the retesting, uh, launching their capsule, supporting that. Uh, we have an underway recovery test uh, with the Navy early next year, where we go underway for about 10 days off the sea to basically just practice with a, a mock-up capsule and, uh, you know, just refine all the TTPs for that. Yeah. You know, we usually do this at the beginning. Uh, I was just so excited to jump in and, and uh, talk about the topic. but. Uh, 
spend a couple minutes and tell us about, you know, your, your story, where you came from, uh, you know, firewise and where all you've been. Yeah. So I joined back in 2003, uh, and then first base was Columbus air force base. Uh, I was only there 11 months before our PCS to, uh, Kadena. Um, but I had a deployment in between there. And then went to Kadena. I was at, at Kadena for four years. And then I PCS to Patrick and in, in 2009 and then, but I was like on the fence of getting out. I was like, I mean, I went to taps. I was, you know, out the door. I even had, had a line for tech and everything at one point. And I was like, and then I just decided to stay in. And then, so I was actually been, have been trying to PCS for a few years from Patrick when the guy called and told me that this job was advertised. And I waited till like the last day to ever, to even apply for the position. And I didn't tell my fire chief or anybody that was applying for it because I did. I was like, didn't want any help to get the job. If I got it, I got it because I knew it would keep me here at Patrick for another couple of couple of years. But um, but I'm glad I did. I love it. I mean, it's probably one of the coolest things I've done in the Air Force. However, I miss being in a fire station. I miss being with all the firefighters and everything. So um, I'll be heading back to Davis Moth and Air Force Base uh, early next year uh, to join a team. So. That's outstanding. Well, I'm sure they're going to love having you on the team with all your, uh, you know, your unique training and experience and stuff to bring that into the fold there. Uh, so uh, congratulations on the on the assignment that you have. And, uh, you know, hopefully the, the next guy's half as excited and and, uh, and half as smart as you and uh, can can really take the take the cruise and, and make something good happen. So, uh, well. I, I'm so so honored to have you on the show. I just want to ask if there's anything else you want to you want to share with the listeners before we go. No, I, I just know um, a lot of like people kind of think this position right is kind of a waste of position for our career field. And I honest like I think this position is able to highlight our career field and an aspect that we don't get a lot of opportunities to do. I mean, you know, we get the NASA knows who I am, like what my position is, and they highly respect what we say in our position. So I think it would be a disservice to our career field to lose, to have that attachment still to the human space flight, especially since we're gearing up, you know, and, and getting into the, the next generation of human space flight. Well, I can, I can get on board with that sentiment for sure. So again, thanks for uh, coming on and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you down the road. All right, thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more content just like this regularly posted to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast. That is facebook.com forward slash the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share this episode with your friends and coworkers. This is Ben Perry with guest Jeremy McClendon. Until next time, stay safe.